Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Lara Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is September 23rd, 2022, and I am very happy to have with me today my friend and colleague Jessica Montel. Uh, Jessica Montel normally comes to us from Israel, where she is the head of the executive director, I should say, of Hamoked. Uh, today she is coming to us from Cape Town, where she is visiting, but she has generously agreed to give us a little of her time. As a reminder for folks who don't know Jessica, um, Hamoked is the Center for Defense of the Individual, and Jessica has been a leading figure in Israeli civil society for two decades. For 13 years, she headed the human, Israeli human rights organization B'Tselem. She left B'Tselem in 2014 and formed an organization called CISO, Save Israel, Stop the Occupation. And then she moved on um, eventually to Haaretz. She was also, but your bio is just like so mind-blowing to me every time. Um, she was selected as one of Haaretz's uh, the, the year's 10 most influential Anglo immigrants in 2011. In 2013, the UK-based um, Action on Armed Violence selected Jessica as one of the 100 most influential people in the world, working to make the world a safer place. So she is a frequent speaker and commentator on human rights, international humanitarian law, and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And she is a, a dear friend, and I am so happy to have her with us today. Thank you, Jessica. Um, and you, Thanks way, so you much follow- for having me. And you should follow Jessica um, on Twitter um, at Jessica Montel, one word. Okay, so we're going to jump in here. And Jessica, I told you that I've wanted to have you on today um, really as a follow-up to a podcast that you did a couple of months ago with my dear friend Ori Near at Americans for Peace Now, where you broke down in, I would argue, the clearest possible way that I've seen the new Israeli regulations for entry into the West Bank. Um, and, and I would recommend that podcast to people. I'll put a link to that in the, the text that goes with this with this event that we're doing today. Um, but since that time, Israel um, has updated the, the regulations. So first, some background for people who are not familiar. Um, in February of 22, Israel published new procedures that are intended to govern the entry of all foreigners who are visiting the West Bank. It explicitly doesn't apply to foreigners who are visiting both Israel and the West Bank. Um, and, and when you say the West Bank, we're talking here about the Palestinian areas of the West Bank. It doesn't apply to settlements either. So this was intended to replace what is an existing four-page document called Procedure for the Entry of Foreigners to the Areas of Judea and Samaria. So that, um, that publication caused a lot of consternation, and there were challenges, including from Hamoked. And um, the military postponed this effort until July 2022 to consider objections. Fast forward, there was more rounds of consideration. Back on September 4th of this month, uh, the Israelis published an updated version of the procedures, which is set to come into force now on October 20th. Um, And that really hit the news in a big way, mainly because of the question of what it meant for romantic relationships, which is one tiny, tiny piece of it, but it's good good clickbait to put that on as the headlines. Um, and after we had a couple rounds of those clickbait headlines, Israel then then revised, right? We keep having revisions. Um, and, and we now have the U.S. ambassador who's saying that this is a continuing process and it's being improved and we're now going to see how it goes. But according to Hamilked, the revisions that have taken place, even with these revisions, um, I'm going to quote, most of the flaws remain and some even exacerbated. Um, and Hamoked goes on to say the new procedure is highly restrictive and needlessly hampers the entry of foreign passport holders to the OPT, the Occupied Palestinian Territories, and their ability to stay there without interruption, all this without any legal basis or reasonable grounds and contrary to Israel's obligation to act 
for the benefit of the protected population living under occupation. And by the way, that quote comes from a statement that um, that Hamoked put out um, January 14th, I think. I'm gonna, I'm gonna include that link as well. So with that as the context, I wanna drill down with you. And I wanted, this is gonna be really just, just so people can understand these damn regulations. I wanna ask you first what this means for Palestinians, for families. And again, I said the, the issue of romantic relationships was heavily in the headlines. You can address that as well here, I think. First of all, what does this mean for a Palestinian who is married to a foreigner? So they have this one spouse who's a foreign national. And, and, and you know, to what, how, how does this impact them and their families in their current revised forms that Ambassador Nide says have been improved and that we're going to now live with for two years to see how they go? So the current uh, revised document is, in fact, uh, a deterioration over existing practice. And here you have to separate between there's a very lengthy description in the document of what is basically a hypothetical or theoretical process where a spouse can get status in the West Bank um, and the reality of what actually is already happening and is going to happen. Uh, Israel controls the population registry uh, of the Palestinians. So Israel decides who gets uh, status. I mean, who gets naturalized, if you like, as a Palestinian. And basically no one does, um, with the exception of, you know, a, a political diplomatic gesture to the leadership or to President Biden, as happened uh, ahead of the president's visit. Uh, there is no regular process to submit an application to um, legalize the status of your spouse, have that application considered and decided upon. That never happens. So there's 10 or 15 pages in this document discussing that procedure that never happens. Uh, and then what it says is, if you have not undergone that procedure, you can come on the short-term visa of three months. You could maybe get that extended for another three months. And then that's it. You're going to have to leave the West Bank. Uh, and even to get that three month or the additional extension, uh, you may be asked to deposit very large sums of money, like $20,000. Because, of course, many spouses come and are living with their spouse, you know, don't want to leave. They have children here. They have jobs. They uh, uh... So then as a condition for even coming on that th first three months, you're going to have to deposit a large sum of money to make sure that you leave. And that is a, a, a much, a very severe deterioration over the current situation where you can extend these, you know, short-term visitor visas uh, for over two years and then leave and come right back again for another two years. I mean, the current situation is very far from ideal, uh, but it's going to get worse under this new procedure. So, so in a nutshell, under the existing procedure, Israel doesn't really permit people to live legally with foreign spouses in the West Bank in the long term, but it de facto allows them to do it, turns a blind eye in a sense. Under the new procedure, that would no longer be possible. And I think, I mean, this is right. essentially, essentially Israel saying Palestinians who marry foreigners can leave if they want to live with their, their spouses, or they can live separately. Those are their options. Is that Sort of right. Some... And I would just add, there are two other things in this procedure. You have a whole section for the spouses, and then you have a whole section for 
let's call them professional visas, people who come to work or to teach or to study or to volunteer. That's a whole different section. And of course, spouses, you know, most of them are doing something while they're here. Most of them are working or teaching or studying. Uh, so currently, it's very possible that many people who are here and get visas for working or studying or teaching are also spouses. The new procedure says, if you are the spouse of a Palestinian, rather than that being a reason to facilitate you know, work and other visas, in fact, that precludes you from being eligible. If you are married to a Palestinian, you are not able to get a permit because you work here or study here or teach here. Uh, and explicitly in the procedures, one of the considerations to be considering any kind of a visa is the risk that you will become entrenched here. That's the direct quote from the procedure. The risk of becoming entrenched. So living with your family, wanting to come here in order to live with your family, that's a risk that they have to take steps to prevent. So the procedure is literally designed to prevent families from living together in the West Bank. Um, yes. So that's very clear. So let's talk beyond spouses. What about children? And what about family beyond the immediate family? So for instance, if I am the child of a Palestinian and I don't have Palestinian residency in the West Bank, maybe I'm born overseas, can I come and visit? Or for instance, if I am a, if, if I live in the United States as a Palestinian and my grandparent dies, can I, can I get a visa to go to their funeral? Can an aunt come? Can an aunt get a visa to come to their child, their their, their niece's graduation? Um, can a an uncle come to a wedding? Is there any provision in this for those sort of visas? So the visas are very clear. We are talking about let's you know the visitor, the person who comes for up to three months. That is spouse, uh, first degree relative. A first degree relative can come and visit their immediate family in the West Bank, your child, your parent, your sibling, or your spouse. Beyond that, there is no possibility. You are not entitled to that visitor permit. So grandparents or cousins, you know, even your friend, you want to come visit your college roommate who's a Palestinian in the West Bank. No, that is not grounds for these short-term visitors permits. So let's... Um... What about the issue that was in the news, the, the issue if you're visiting and start a romantic relationship, which is, I think, one of the things that was changed based on international pressure. Can you talk about that? Yes. Uh, I mean, as you said, the clickbait um, was removed from the procedure, but the, the basic principle is the same. What what the you know, the headline that was quite shocking, the previous procedure said um, within 30 days of entering a romantic relationship with a Palestinian, you have to notify the Israeli military. So you no longer have to notify within 30 days. And there no longer is this vague phrasing of a romantic relationship, you know, um, which could be defined in different ways. But if you are, you know, you marry a Palestinian, the next time your visa is extended, you're here teaching at Birzeit University, you marry a Palestinian, when you need to re renew the, the work visa, 
you still have to inform the Israeli military that you're now married in a relationship with a Palestinian. And as I said previously, that's grounds for canceling other um, visas. And just to make it clear, when they talk about foreigners, they're talking about anyone who doesn't have a Palestinian West Bank ID. So a Palestinian from Canada counts as a foreigner on this, right? Yes. Anyone who is not an Israeli or a Palestinian is governed by these procedures. If you're not in the Palestinian population registry and you're not in the Israeli, you don't have an Israeli ID card, these procedures affect you. Okay, so now let's go to some of the other categories, which I mean, uh, when you start thinking about the other categories of travel and you sort of touched on it, but I want to just touch on them and we can go through this pretty quickly. What if you are a journalist? There are journalists, there, there are West Bank news outlets and say they want to hire someone to work for them as a journalist. Um, say that I am a young Palestinian who's just graduated from a great journalism school in the United States. I'm born in the United States. Can I get a visa? to go work as a journalist in the West Bank? So if you are coming to work for a, an international news outlet or any uh, news outlet that's reg registered with the Israeli government press office, you can come for that initial um, three-month visa. That's one of the limited categories of people that can come for those short-term visas, and you can get a work permit. Again, you're working for the BBC or NPR in uh, the occupied territories, you can come. Uh, there is no basis for these either short-term or longer-term permits if you're working for a Palestinian news agency. That's not one of the criteria. So as far as a domestic Palestinian news industry um, this is this is pretty this this is targeting them. What about right. academia? And there's been a lot of questions about academia. Um, and this, I want you to answer this with respect to students who might want to come to the West Bank, professors who might want to come and teach in the West Bank, guest lecturers who might be invited to come in and just give a lecture in the West Bank. How does this affect foreigners, which includes again Palestinians who are not residents? How does this affect their ability? to travel to the West Bank. Yes, so here you also had, uh, I don't know if it's clickbait, but a lot of attention to uh, very severe restrictions on academic freedom of Palestinian universities. You had some substantive changes. The most dramatic uh, new restrictions were a quota uh, on both foreign students and foreign lecturers, very small numbers of students from abroad that would be allowed to come uh, and a very small number of lecturers that would be allowed to come. The quota has been removed. Uh, also the language about the screening that would take place. Uh, the initial language was that every applicant would have to undergo an interview uh, in the Israeli consulate in their you know, foreign country. Um, that language has been toned down and now you may be called in for an interview. Uh, you don't have the quotas, but still you have um, all sorts of very, um, what seems to be random and invasive criteria that are being set by the Israeli military rather than by the academic institution. Uh, you know, a lecturer has to have a PhD uh, unless the 
military officer decides that in a certain uh, uh, discipline, it's not warranted, right? So, not so that the fact, academic faculty. So Israel gets to decide who's qualified to lecture in a Palestinian university, not the Palestinian university. And right. what about the subjects uh, they can lecture on, for example? The, the subjects, I mean, also you had an infuriating phrasing that the Israeli military would decide, uh, you know, what constituted academic excellence that would warrant uh, a lecturer, what were necessary disciplines. That language has been removed. Uh, whether in, in practice you're going to see that intervention, we don't know. Uh, so currently um, the, the problems are still the qualifications for lecturers that in some cases will be determined by the Israeli military. And then the, the periods of the visas are really not suited to facilitate, um, you know, academic exchange. Uh, students can come for an academic year, but if a student wants to do a degree in a Palestinian university, they can come for a maximum of 27 months, and then they have to leave and renew their application. For faculty, it's even more dramatic. There is no way that a Palestinian university could offer tenure to a foreign faculty member because they can stay for 27 months and then they have to leave and resubmit the application. And then they could come back for a maximum of five years. And in the most extenuating circumstances, maybe that could be extended, but you know, it's far beyond the control of the university. Again, there's no way to make a long-term investment in bringing faculty uh, to your university. And then you have, for all sorts of um, disciplines, uh, a cooling off, what they call a cooling off period. Again, this is, you know, to, I guess, prevent this risk, quote unquote, of becoming entrenched in the West Bank. So a volunteer that comes to a Palestinian institution can only stay for one year, and then there is a cooling off period. They have to leave for a year before they can come back. So uh, I wanted to sort of like really emphasize this point about academia because for an American audience, I, I want people to just really think about what this means. The idea that a, this, is a, this is a foreign government, Israel does not claim, these are not citizens that is ruling over. It's not just saying for security reasons, we have to check the people coming in out and making sure they don't pose a security risk. It is literally going to say who is allowed to teach at the universities and how long they can stay and that's, and probably what they can teach. I mean, it's, it's, it's really remarkable at, in terms of it's an overt intrusion into Palestinian academia. Um, you mentioned volunteers. I want to get and, to the and just Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I mean, just to say one, you know, this is this is um, is the case broadly for all elements of this procedure. But as you say, the academic freedom, it misses the point to focus on each, um, you know, article and say, what's the problem? What's the problem with saying a lecturer has to be over 25? Right. Which seems maybe reasonable. What's the problem with saying you have to have a Ph.D.? to be a lecturer in a university. Well, yeah, I mean, the I problem say, I, is it's not the university. Yeah, I, I would say none of this seems I mean, reasonable for an external organization, an external body to be deciding on behalf of an, right. of, of an of right. a university. If the US government tried to put those limits on what American universities can do, they, there would be, there would be, I mean, people would cry foul appropriately. Um, it, right. it, 
it, it's, and and I think uh, uh, we would all agree that uh, universities should be encouraged and given all assistance to develop, to be uh, you know recruiting students and faculty to I mean the, to be benefiting from um, international exchange. So the idea that that the procedure is all about limiting and restricting. I mean, as you say, a foreign military limiting and restricting all engagement with the outside world is outrageous, you know, both for academic institutions and for Palestinian society as a whole. Absolutely. And and that's, I guess, the key point is this idea of, I keep coming back to the sense of isolation, that the idea here is to, through various means, isolate Palestinians from the outside world. I want to ask you sort of broadly, there are other reasons people travel. You mentioned tourism. There's been an effort by Palestinians to, to, to bring tourists. Why not? That's a, If you live in Bethlehem, that should be a big part of your economy, right? This is the Holy Land. Um, and, and Israeli tour companies have no problem bringing tourists into the West Bank when they can make money doing it. Why shouldn't Palestinians also have a tourist economy? After Oslo, this was one of what was supposed to be one of the pillars of a Palestinian economy. So talk for a second about the other ways that people might want to travel to Palestine, but under these um, regulations would have difficult. I'm thinking difficulty. I'm thinking here, regular tourists. I'm thinking of people, artists participating in art exhibits or in, in some kind of events. Athletes, right. the sort of things that people want to organize everywhere, the Palestinian intramural games, right? Religious travelers, people wanting to come and visit Bethlehem, for example, go to Jericho. Um, or again, non-family members wanting to go to a friend's wedding or funeral or graduation. I mean, what are the provisions in these regulations when it comes to the whole world of people who have legitimate reasons for wanting to visit and spend time in the West Bank, um, but who aren't first degree family members, aren't lecturers who might come into this, these complicated regulations? So uh, it's a closed list of who can come rather than outlining who cannot come and saying everybody else, you know, any legitimate purpose people uh, are allowed to travel. It's the opposite. There is a closed list that is business people and investors, first degree family members, journalists with international outlets. Those are the people who can come on short term visits. So cultural exchanges, a film festival, uh, a pilgrimage, uh, a tour group. There is no arrangement in these procedures for any of those trips. Now, uh, the, the, this procedure does not apply to what Israel calls mixed visits. If you are coming as a tourist to Israel and the Palestinian territories, you're not governed by these guidelines. You're governed by the Ministry of Interior, you know, the regular guidelines governing visits to Israel. So, you know, a pilgrim who is coming to Jerusalem which has, is annexed and considered part of Israel, you know, Jerusalem and Bethlehem, you are, will not be affected. A tourist to Israel and the West Bank will not be affected. But Palestinian institutions that would want to develop, um, you know, their own events uh, or groups to bring uh, would not be able to. And I get a lot of questions um, you know, but what if I say I'm going to, I tell them at the airport, I'm going to Tel Aviv and Ramallah, you know, people might be able to get, you know, plenty of people can try whatever they try. I'm going to spend the night in Jerusalem before I go on to Bethlehem. 
you know, maybe it will work and maybe it won't. But in terms of talking about the policy, about what is the intent and, and the legal framework, I mean, it's irrelevant whether some people might be able to, you know, slip through and manage. And, and the, as you said, the isolating, I mean, it's both isolating Palestinian civil society and requiring, I mean, people who want to come for an event in Ramallah then are re- either they're not able to do it or they're required to also, um, you know, have a counterpart uh, uh, program inside Israel. It also, um, I mean, it also speaks to the this different, I mean, we're talking about who it affects as a single pool of, of people who are not legal residents of Israel or the West Bank. But from the entry perspective of Israel, I'm thinking about who uses the bridge versus who uses the airport. Um, it, this really is, I think, the impact here is on the people who would be coming and entering Israel with visas that say for the West Bank only, usually through the bridge, which is going to be the people of Palestinian origin. Um, and that is a, the clear effort to, 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 com- to completely isolate the West Bank from the Palestinian population, the more broad population. I, I want to come back to that. But first, I want you mentioned volunteers before, and I want to ask you about the issue of volunteers. And you have a large population of, of internationals, of, of non people not of Palestinian origin and of Palestinians of, from, who live around the world, who come to Palestine to work for civil society organizations, for humanitarian organizations. It, what, what are the provisions if you want to come in and do that? So the new procedure uh, really is going to harm all of those institutions that rely on uh, volunteers. And I said, there's this cooling off period of one year. I mean, you have institutions that are really relying on the volunteers, um, elementary and high schools that, uh, are, are teaching an English language curriculum and then American and British and other foreign teachers that are coming as volunteers that are really a crucial part of the staff. Uh, those people now could not have a long-term uh, volunteer stint with that institution. They can come for one year and then they have to leave and they will not be able to return. They have that cooling off period for a year. So that is really a blow to all of those institutions. And again, why wouldn't, I mean, either either the Israeli military should be indifferent, uh, you know, let Palestinian society develop or even be facilitating as the occupying power. You should be working for the benefit of the local population. Obviously all of this engagement, volunteers coming and donating their time to Palestinian institutions that, you know, again, either the Israeli military should be hands off or actually facilitating, making it easier for these people to come and they are doing the opposite. And then I have to add, there is a very blatant discrimination in the document. You have five nationalities that are excluded from coming to the West Bank for any reason. Um, uh, nationals of Jordan, Egypt, Morocco, Bahrain, South Sudan. So it's a funny list, but uh, you know the largest population of people who would want to come are uh, people with Jordanian passports. A lot of those are Palestinian refugees. So family, extended family of people living in the West Bank. A lot of the spouses Uh, The foreign spouses uh, have Palestinian passports, but that population cannot apply 
for a visa for any reason, not as a spouse, not to work or study or volunteer, not for the short term, even the short term visit as a journalist or an investor uh, or a family member. And, and what is uh, crucial to understand and has even been exacerbated in the new procedure, dual nationals are considered to be uh, also excluded. If you have a Jordanian passport and a US passport, for this procedure, you will be considered Jordanian and you are not able to come for any reason. So it's a very blatant discrimination among Americans or among Europeans. And when I say it has been exacerbated, it is not only a national a, a passport holder of Jordan, it is also someone whose uh, background is Jordan. There's a discrepancy between the Hebrew says, uh, if your background is from Jordan, the English says if you were born in Jordan. So I mean, somebody born in Jordan or Morocco who doesn't even have that passport, right? Uh, a French uh, university professor who wants to come teach in a Palestinian university but was born in Morocco, no, there is no way for them to come. So, uh, I mean, again, a very blatant discrimination um, among Americans, among Europeans. Uh, some people will be able to come and others not. The I have to say that last one, that that last set of that list of countries, I think is it deserves notice because we're talking here about the the Arab countries that have made that have normalized relations with Israel, and it appears to be that they are now singled out by Israel as their nationals not being able to to have any relations with Palestinians, which seems extraordinary. The inclusion of Jordan on that list um, actually seems to be a level of cruelty that is almost incomprehensible. Um, for all of us who, who have friends in Jordan and in the West Bank, anyone who, who spends any time understands the family relations that go across that border, the constant movement back and forth, the economic ties, the cultural ties, the education ties, the idea that all Palestinians who have Jordanian passports are now going to be unable to access anything in the West Bank, close family members, is it, again, it, it almost seems like the cruelty is the point here. And I'm thinking of, of, of friends of mine where, you know, one sibling has been forced to move to Jordan because Israel wouldn't give a residency permit to their Palestinian Jordanian husband. So now you have siblings on both sides of the border simply because Israel would not permit the, the spouse in the first place to live in the West Bank. And now that entire family is going to be broken in two. It is, it is almost incomprehensible the level of inhumanity um, inherent in that particular clause. Um, Go ahead. Yes, I mean, I come back to the risk of becoming entrenched. And I feel like that sentence, in some ways, I'm grateful for the document because it puts down it in black on white a lot of what was happening in any case. And, and that um, cruelty to um, people in Jordan, you know, Palestinians in Jordan who were not able to come, much of that was happening. Uh, even before this document. Uh, but that risk of becoming entrenched, it, for me, it's like saying the quiet part out loud. And then you realize, of course, the document has nothing to do with security concerns. Uh, the demographic motivation, the, the fear that Jordanians uh, would come and uh, settle in 
the West Bank. Again, people would come and get a job. And, and by stay. Jordanians, people you mean come and get married. And by Jordanians, you mean Palestinians who yes, after the yes, 67 yes. war found themselves in Jordan. Let's be very clear. Right, right, right. So the idea that uh, Palestinians, yes, ethnic Palestinians would come, come or come back um, and work and study and get married and quote unquote, become entrenched. That is the preventing, that is the one of the main uh, motivations of this document. Yeah, no, I, I agree very much what you're saying about the quiet part out loud. It is almost, it, it really is almost a gift to have Israel put down so clearly its intentions. And, you know, as we have debates about the word apartheid and what Israel's policies are, it, it, it's it's really quite helpful to have Israel be so, so brazen about what its intentions are vis-a-vis -vis the West Bank and its Palestinian residents. I want to ask you, I, I, we've gone on for a long time and I appreciate everyone listening. It's a lot of, it's a lot of detail. Um, you mentioned um, you mentioned the idea of, of that that this in addition. So you have essentially you have with this document all visitors to the West Bank, foreigners, which includes Palestinians of other nationalities. There is essentially a blacklist of everybody, and then there's a very short whitelist for the people who have been whitelisted. You then have extraordinarily onerous procedures. At best, you have very short-term visas. And then you have cooling off periods if you want to renew those visas. Extensions sound like they're they're limited and mostly impossible. And ex extremely high um, financial um, what you, guarantees that may have to be put guarantees. down. Guarantees. Can you also can you talk about just generally that basket of things, and also the question of who gets to use Ben Gurion Airport? And this, I think, the Ben Gurion Airport for me is a question that also leads into something you've talked about before and you, you just actually finished with, which is the, the treatment of, of, for example, Americans, this re reciprocity, right? How you're treating American citizens, discrimination against some foreign citizens, which is very relevant today as the US ambassador and the Biden administration appear to be doing everything possible to figure out a way to give Israel the visa waiver program. And the visa waiver program is supposed to be contingent upon the country that's joined the visa waiver program, not discriminating against American citizens who are travelers. So as your final answer, can you wrap all of that up and then say anything else that you think I forgot to ask you? Yes. Uh, number one, anyone coming to the West Bank will no longer be able to use Ben Gurion, Israel's airport. If you are coming solely to the West Bank, you have to come through Jordan and cross the Allenby Bridge crossing between Jordan and the West Bank. Which again uh, is the sharp and, irony since Jordanians can't do that. Yes. So yes. You must travel through Jordan, yes. but Jordanians are 100% barred from doing that. And you are right. Uh, you know, the whole idea of the visa waiver program and the existing visa waiver program for Europeans is predicated on reciprocity. Uh, we treat your nationals the way you treat our nationals. So, of course, it should be a concern to the U.S. government as they uh, advance a visa waiver program, the fact that not all Americans will be treated in the same way when it comes to um, entering the West Bank, crossing, you know, navigating the Israeli restrictions to enter the West Bank. And I think the 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 you know, there are two halves to the conversation in terms of advocating against these regulations. Uh, one is 
the harm to Palestinian society as a whole, which we have summarized as um, isolating Palestinian civil society, preventing international cooperation, and this demographic engineering, keeping families from living together in the West Bank. And it's crucial that that be you know, a main talking point, what it does to Palestinians, Israel's human rights obligations vis-a-vis -vis Palestinians. But of course, uh, there is an added uh, interest of the US, of Europe, to talk about the way their own nationals are being treated, the way their own programs, international development agencies that are running programs and their staff needs to be getting visas and going back and forth. Um, you know, all of the ways that their nationals are being discriminated against, uh, again, I think is, is a, it's a benefit to us. You know, we, it necessarily focuses attention. You can't ignore, um, but I think we have to be focusing on both halves of that picture. Yeah, absolutely. I would say for a lot of us, when we, when we raise the issue of reciprocity, it's meant to be a, a tool to help focus people on the general plight, not like if you can fix it for American citizens, then that then everything's fixed. I lied. I do have one right. more question. One more thing I want you to comment on, which has been on my mind a lot. I, I, I'm on a bunch of listservs for right-wing evangelical Zionist organizations and for settler groups in the West Bank. And I feel like it's almost every week I get an invitation to go out and join settlers and volunteering to harvest the, the vines and the settler olive, uh, olive groves and grape vineyards and to go out and do, do experiences on the ground in Judea and Samaria. No one ever mentions any special visa requirements as a foreigner for right. me to go out and hang out in the settlements right next to the villages, which face all these requirements that we're talking about. Can you... Can you comment on that? And, and I ask you to do that, particularly because we are having this constant conversation now about whether or not the word apartheid, small a, is appropriate when talking about these policies. So can you make that your, your mic drop final answer? Yes. So the, the title of the procedure is entry and stay of foreigners in the West Bank. But, uh, you know, let's say we, uh, Israel has a university in the Ariel settlement. So that is a university, a college in the West Bank. But of course, a foreign student or teacher can come easily to that university and is not subject to these restrictions. Whereas a Najah University in Nablus, uh, you know, maybe 10 miles down the road in the same territory governed by the Israeli military under military occupation would be subject to all of these new restrictions. So, I mean, we talked about the, the way that Americans are gonna be discriminated against different kinds of Americans, but also depending on where you go in the West Bank, there's a very clear discrimination. Uh, it's only one of many ways that um, uh, rights and privileges are determined in the West Bank based on, you know, na nationality and ethnicity. So, I mean, it is it is hard to ignore the, I mean, the 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 basis of apartheid of discrimination based on separation based on discrimination. Uh, you know, the fact that all of your rights and privileges are are determined in the same area. People literally living right next door to each other. Um, your rights depend on your ethnicity. It's, you know, striking in every aspect of daily life, 
in the West Bank. And then these new restrictions on the entry of foreigners only um, highlights that or adds a new dimension to it. All right, that's a perfect place to stop. So we're gonna stop there. Jessica, thank you so much for joining me today for our audience. Thanks for listening or watching. And uh, don't forget to follow Jessica on Twitter at Jessica Montel, J-E-S-S-I-C-A-M-O-N-T-E-L-L. And finally, as always, I want to remind people, subscribe to the Occupied Thoughts podcast. There's great content coming out all the time. You can do so on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. That way you don't miss any of the great stuff we're doing. You can also find the podcast and a video of the podcast on our website, www.fmep.org, where I'll have links to the Hamoked um, most recent statement that we were talking about, as well as the, the great Americans for Peace Now podcast that preceded this one. So with that, we're going to end this here. I'm Laura Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Thank you, Jessica Montel from Hamoked, signing off until Thanks the next for having episode me. of Occupied Thoughts. <laughs>